Good morning. How's everyone? Good. It's always fun to see the kids. Amen. Yes, yes. If you're new, uh, we're so glad you're here and we'd love to connect with you, help you uh, get to know the people in our church, give you a gift and answer any questions you might have out in the courtyard. There's a welcome center. We'd love to give you a gift and uh, connect with you in that way. This Sunday, do not forget, Sunday morning, no services, right? The services will be the Christmas Eve services. So 3 and 4.30, make sure you get here early so you have a good seat. Um, for all you longtime attenders, remember, someone might be in your seat, and that's okay. okay? Make you meet someone new, find a different perspective. Um, I look terrible from all angles, so you'll learn that. Uh, but we want you to come and celebrate Christ with us. Again, no morning services, just the evening services. Uh, invite your family, your friends. We'll have a candlelight service, and I will celebrate Christ together. Uh, so I'm going to pray, and then we're going to hop into Matthew 17 and walk through all that is in uh, these 13 verses. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you've done. Uh, we thank you for this passage in Matthew 17 as it highlights intricacies and struggles and truths that are pertinent and important to us. Uh, we pray that we would meditate on them. We would uh, deposit them in our hearts and think highly of you. Uh, we pray that we would surrender more and more of ourselves to you. Uh, that you would be the highest value, highest priority, that we cherish, love, and adore. Uh, so we pray for these words to convict us, encourage us, and teach us uh, for our good and your glory. So we pray these things in your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so we're in Matthew chapter 17, and hopefully you've been tracking. Um, there's some motifs going on within Matthew, and we're going to keep hammering this question, you know, who is Jesus? Because that's what the disciples uh, are learning. They're learning, you know, what is the kingdom and who is Jesus and what's their role in the kingdom? And some of you might be like, dude, I already know that. Like we've talked about it for, for you know, three weeks. I've been in church my whole life. And here, here's something I want you to ponder. Uh, the disciples walked and lived with Jesus every day. They spent close to three years with him and they still fundamentally struggle with what? Who is Jesus? Because there is a great divide sometimes between who we intellectually say Christ is and how we emotionally treat Jesus. How our actions correlate to our declarations are of deep importance. And so what we want to do is just walk through this and see, you know, how, how is God shaping and transforming Peter? How does that help us, encourage us, and teach us? And so let's start with, you know, who is Jesus to you? You know, Peter has rightfully said multiple times, okay, he is the son of man, right? So he's the king, that title. He's the king, he's in charge, but he's also Christ, right? Messiah, savior, but he's also son of God. So he's God. And so what you're seeing is the disciples continually, they say the right thing, but their actions don't always correlate to the answers. Meaning, if you know that you're talking to God, would you ever rebuke him and tell him, you don't know what you're saying? Right? That's where an action is divorced from, you just called him God. You just said like he knows everything. So to make that action is a divorce from the title that you just given him. And so this is Peter's problem. You see multiple times, 
In, in Matthew, he says, do you understand? It's like, yes, we understand. Yes, we understand. Okay? If they understand, why do they keep getting it wrong? Because it's very hard sometimes for what you emotionally desire and what you intellectually know to agree with each other. And so what this helps us do is see how do they work this out and how does this come together? And the last thing I'll leave you with is this. It is, I think what helps us emotionally anchor what we intellectually know, Jesus is in charge, you know, he's the creator, he's the king, is that there is an absolute awe and reverence for who he is. I think in our culture, we divorce a healthy, cultivated fear that that's the one who made me, that's the one who can end me, that's the one who is over all things and powerful over all things. And so my question would be, do you have a healthy fear of the Lord? When you're coming to him in prayer, is there a fear? When you're living out your daily life, is it in fear, in light of, he could do anything he wants. He can ask anything he wants. Do you have that fear? And the reason I ask that question is in our culture, we, we tend to focus on, you know, Jesus is love or he's this blonde hair, blue eyed, white flowing hair Jesus. And he just wants us to be happy. He wants to support our decisions and be our therapist and help us be the ultimate best us. And so we pray and approach him in a way that's consistent with that emotional attachment. And so when you think of Jesus, my question is, so we've kind of walked through the titles, but like emotionally, that third dimensional kind of textual part, how do you think of him? How do you feel about him when you're talking to him? This text, I think, highlights a very important point. And I think it is uh, something that will begin to anchor and help the disciples. Because Peter's consistently getting it wrong, saying the right thing, doing the wrong thing, saying the right thing, doing the wrong thing. So finally, we're, we're headed towards this crescendo with, with Peter in the gospel of him failing and learning, failing and learning. And here I think is an epic moment of, okay, Peter, you have rebuked Jesus. Now Jesus has rebuked you. Now we come six days later, Peter, James, and John 17, verse one, they go up the mountain. They're by themselves. They see a transfigured Jesus that literally means like he is a completely different, like than what they're used to seeing. It's like a cocoon and a butterfly transforming from one to the other, right? Metamorphosis. It, it is literally morphing in front of them. And so they see this. And it's bright like the sun and his clothes are white with light. And he's talking to Moses and Elijah, right? Moses gave the law, Elijah is a prophet. So you have the law and the prophets, the culmination, that's the Old Testament, speaking to Jesus. And speaking to Jesus, the other gospels tell us about him going to die in Jerusalem. So Peter sees this and Peter's like, hey, good thing I'm here. Maybe I'll make us some tents. You're like, Peter, what are you doing? Like, it doesn't make any sense, right? Um, one of the gospels says that Peter had no clue what he was doing, right? Like, he was literally in fear. So he just kind of blurts this out. So he blurts this out. And as he's speaking, look at verse 5. He was still speaking. God interrupts him. We're done, Peter. We're done talking. 
and a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Verse six, this is what I'm getting at. And the disciples heard this. They fell on their faces and they were terrified. So they're like, Peter, we're done talking. Stop talking. Just do what he says. Just do what he says. You keep getting this wrong, man. Just do what he says. I get it. You don't understand. How is he a king that's also going to die? How is he in charge but going to be humiliated? How is he going to rule on a throne while he's in a grave? But he's going to rise from the grave. He can't reconcile it. So literally God says, just stop talking. Do what he says. And in the midst of that, they're terrified. Absolutely terrified. This is a healthy thing. Now, I don't want to come off, you know, 1950s, 1940s, you know, uh, hell, fire, and brimstone preaching to where you're so afraid of God that you won't even talk to him. But there is a healthy fear in here. And right after this fear, look at verse 7. Jesus came and touched them, saying, rise and have no fear. See, there's this great tension. Do you know who you're talking to? You should be afraid. Know who you're talking to, but have no fear. Why? Because you're one of his children. And it's that tension. It's like when we talked about Jesus in the boat and the storm, being fearful of the one in the boat more than being fearful of the storm because Jesus commands the storm. Um, this kind of comes together in a good illustration. I was visiting a church and a pastor, um, he, was, he was talking about like the holiness of God and he was talking about the reverence of God. And he talked about how he had met his wife. They met in college and he uh, flew back with her, I believe to like Kansas to, to meet her parents, to have the talk. And so as soon as he walks into the house before he gets introduced to the dad, um, she, he'd kind of been warned, look, my dad's a SWAT commander. So just like, you know, don't do anything dumb, right? And so as soon as he walks in, he's like, hey, you're with me. We're doing a training session down at the courthouse. You're gonna be in the judge's chambers and we're gonna see if we can protect you from the terrorists killing you, right? I just wish I could do that when my daughter's date. Like, doesn't that seem like the perfect cover? Oops, had an accident. That's another sermon, but right? So he's in there. And he tells the story that he's hiding underneath a desk and he hears gunshots raining and smoke flaring. And he says the most terrified he'd been in all his life. And he says, as he's praying and as he's terrified, God brings it to his mind. Do you realize that although you are terrified, this is probably the absolute safest you've ever been in your life. You're surrounded by trained SWAT professionals armed and could take out anything around you, literally protect you. This is the safest place you could probably be in all the earth. And it was this idea of utter fear, but utter safety mixed together. And so when you process, you know, who is Jesus? This next layer we're walking through is this this layer of reverence and awe holiness and power and sovereignty. 
Because this is kind of the, the next piece in their learning. Just do what he says. And if you can't get there emotionally, and you just can't get there logically, just do what he says because he's God. If you've ever played sports, you, you get this. Coaches will often say this, just do what I tell you. Just do your job. I don't care how you feel. I don't care what you want to do. I don't care what you think you should do. Just do what I tell you. Have you ever been there? As a parent, you've been there, right? And it's not that Jesus doesn't care about you and he doesn't care about your feelings. It's that if you can't reconcile them, at the end of the day, do what he says. This is a part of their learning process because Jesus still has to go to the cross, humiliated, crucified, bear the wrath of God. And they still have to do what he says while they're trying to reconcile what's taking place inside of them. So this is where we, we, we lean on verses like Proverbs 3, 5 through 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and what? Do not lean on your own understanding. See, Jesus, when you think of Jesus, he should be someone you view as superior to you when it comes to morality, life choices, your affections, your uh, do's and don'ts, the raising of your children, the, the, the declaration of your marriage or the outworking and practice of your marriage, the spending of your finance. Lean on not your own understanding. But verse six, in all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight, right? He will straight your paths, make your straight your paths. So as you think through that, who is Christ? Who is Jesus? Has to be met with this idea at the end of the day, I'm talking to God. And I need to just do what he says. You see, they had a tension in the text they're trying to reconcile. Jesus is telling them, look, I need to go and die and suffer. That's Isaiah 53, 5, right? But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. That's the wrath of God, satisfied, that brings peace between us and God because of Christ. And with his wounds, we are healed. So Jesus is telling them, I need to go and do Isaiah 53, but in their minds, they're like, but what about Isaiah chapter 9, 7? Of the increase of government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of the host will do this. How will a king that's on David's throne be crucified? How will a king bear the wrath of God? And they could not reconcile these things. So every time they could not reconcile it, what you see Peter do is trust his deduction and correct Jesus. No, Jesus. No, Jesus. So this culminates in Jesus going up to the mountain. Show, okay, Peter, let me show you who I am. The glory of God revealed in Jesus. And then literally God speaking to him, do what he says, listen to him, listen to him. 
to we have our own modern dilemmas. We struggle with the idea of how could God be loving but want me to deny my feelings? How could God be powerful but evil still exists in the world? How could God be good but things that I don't like and agree happen? And when we come to an impasse, we change what God says to agree with the emotions that we have inside of us. But intellectually, we'll say, no, he's king. No, he's in charge. No, he's Lord. But ultimately, I am guided by my ability to reconcile emotionally and intellectually the things I like and don't like. And so who is Jesus? has to be anchored in a way that says he's holy and I fear him. And because I fear him, I would never choose my own feelings and desires over him. If I have to, if it comes down to it, I will trust and I will choose him. And you can see they're still working this out. How many times have they said, we understand Jesus? And he's like, no, you don't. We understand, no, you don't. So finally, He's telling them, look, this is the son of man. He is raised from the dead. We're in verse nine now. He says, tell no one of the vision until the son of man is raised from the dead. So he's laying it out for them again. Isaiah 53, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna pay for the sins. I'm gonna conquer death when I rise from the dead. Don't tell anyone until we get there. Why is that? Because they're still figuring it out. So then they, they now are starting the process. Well, wait, wait, wait. If this is true, Jesus, if this is true, verse 11, then Elijah does come and he will restore all things. It says, verse 10, then why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? So they're like, wait, Jesus, if you're really the king, how come Elijah hasn't come? See, they're still not getting it. So Jesus answered them. Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the son of man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood. There's that word. Then they understood. He was speaking to them of John the Baptist. So again, this comes down to them trying to reconcile Okay, Jesus, I want to trust you, but I don't get it. So again, Jesus is explaining it. Okay? There's this part of the text I got to deal with, right? And so how is it that this passage makes sense? Because you have John the Baptist that came, he prepared the way for Christ, he proclaimed Jesus, behold the lamb. So he does these things, but he doesn't restore all things like verse 11 says. So I'm going to give you where, where I land on this. You, you can disagree, that's okay. Um, but I never try to hide where I land to give you a fair assessment of where I'm at. Okay, so let's look at Malachi. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament, and in it are prophecies pertaining to Israel and to the Messiah and to how it would unfold. And so you have two verses that, that speak of what's to happen to Elijah. This is similar, I think, to the dilemma that they are having with Jesus. Is he going to be the king? Is he going to pay for the sins? And how does this play? Okay, so let's look at first Elijah chapter or Malachi chapter three, verse one. Because I think in this sense, this has already been fulfilled. 
It says, behold, I will send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. I think that is John the Baptist and that is fulfilled just like it says there in verse 13. He did come, he did proclaim, he was one in the wilderness, cloaked in camel hair and honey, and he did declare prophetically that the Christ, the Messiah is here, repent and believe, be baptized. But when you go to Malachi chapter four, five through six, there's also this, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. I don't think that day has come yet. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Lest I come and strike the land with decree of utter destruction. So I think in one sense, what you have is a partial fulfillment. John the Baptist fulfills the preparing of the way and Elijah is still yet to come. Like, where do you find that? I would say you see that in Revelation 11, three through four, the two witnesses, Moses and Elijah are still yet to come. So you still see the fulfillment of that. What is Jesus, I think, getting at? The kingdom will come later. Essentially, there's two comings, people. This is the first coming. Jesus comes, pays for the sins of the people, bears the wrath of God. The second coming, he'll come back. He'll judge every tribe, every nation, every sin, heaven and hell. He'll send, he'll send. He'll rule from David's throne. Every nation will be subject to his authority. Two comings, one man. I think that's what he's getting at throughout Matthew. Two comings, one man. Two comings, one man. He came to pay for the sins and then he'll come back and judge the people. He will rule from David's throne. Okay, So this is, this is a lot of tension in the text. Do you see it? They're trying to wrestle with this. They're trying to understand this. But ultimately, God cuts to the point. He's like, listen to him. So then that question kind of happens to us. Do our choices reflect our commitments? Or do our, you know, what we say about Jesus, does it match how we treat Jesus? What we say with our head, does it match what we feel in our heart? Because this is ultimately where the rubber meets the road with Peter. As Jesus is trying to get him to a place of, yes, this is what you're saying, but it's not what you are feeling. Yes, this is what you are saying, but this is not what you are doing. And so a question would be, you know, when you think of Jesus and you think of maybe giving him your best, I want you to think emotionally. I want you to think of energy and time. Is Jesus the one who you say, I love you, your king, your creator, therefore my time reflects that. I give you my best. I talk to you often. I seek your advice daily. Or is it more of a end of the night before you fall asleep, that nice little, what you think will be an hour and ends up being three minutes until you fall asleep? Is it that leftover, oh yeah, God. Intellectually, you're saying he deserves everything, but emotionally you're saying, whatever I have left at the end, I'll just throw your way. Let me put it to you this way. It, 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 if you treat Jesus more what I would call like a swap market Jesus. I don't know if you guys are old enough to remember the swap market or the flea market. You would go and you would bargain. And I think sometimes this is how we treat Jesus. Hey, Jesus, you know what? I'm going to go to church 
three times this month. Not going to cheat on my wife. I'm going to give you in the neighborhood of 10, maybe even 11% of my, of my income. And I'm going to pay my taxes. Now you are going to make sure my kids get into a good school. And you're going to make sure that I don't have any bad health. I'm okay with the flu, but I'm not really okay with cancer. And so there's this bargaining that happens between us. Now someone asks you, hey, who are you talking to? Oh, the king, the king of the universe. That's who I'm talking to. My question is, would you talk to a king that way? Hey, king, let me tell you how it's going to be. There's a divorce between the title you acknowledge and the way in which you interact. See, the actions need to be consistent with the titles, emotionally and actually in our behavior. And so when you think through that, that's that's a hard tension, but that's what he's getting at. Now the question becomes, how bad does bad have to get until the emotion reflects the intellectual title that's given? How bad does it have to get until you say, yes, Jesus, I'll listen to you. I want you to track the narrative that's happening in the gospel of Matthew. In all the gospels, Peter, he's always learning the hard way over and over again. And finally, I think Peter hits rock bottom in this climactic ending of the gospel of John. Peter has told Jesus again, I won't deny you. Again, title, you know everything. You're God. You have the glory of God, the radiance of God. What's his action? I would never do that. You're wrong, Jesus. I wouldn't do that. So he denies Christ three times. Jesus ends up being right again. Then at the end of John, I think Peter is finally broken in such a way that he finally gets it. Jesus asks him three times one question. Do you love me? See, he finally gets to the essence of it. Peter, if you love me, feed my sheep. Feed them me. Feed them all I've commanded you. That's Matthew 28. Teach them all I've commanded Feed them me. Do you love me, Peter? And Peter's like, of course I love you. Well, then do what I say. And finally, Peter goes, I love you. I love you. So here's the question. How bad does it have to get till you finally say, you know what, God? I'm done trying my way. You are king. You are in charge. You do know things better than me. I will finally do what you say. I'll look at Matthew 5 through 7. I'll live the Sermon on the Mount. See, here's the problem. Here's one of the heartbreaks in pastoral ministry is usually people come for help when things are so bad. It's almost, catch me, almost beyond repair. They come for marriage advice when the spouse is left and gone. They say, oh, I need marriage help. She tried to fix it in your own strength until finally you, you can't do anything anymore. So finally you wave the flag and say, I'll listen to him now. People come for help and addiction when they need a facility. They need a full-blown rehab. Okay, God, it didn't work. Finally, I'll come to you. 
The kids have left Christ, left the faith. I need help now. The job is lost and the behavior is the issue. Okay, now I'll come and I'll ask for help. How bad does bad have to get until you'll finally just listen to him? This is what the essence of Peter and the disciples are learning. How bad does it have to get? If you can address that sooner than later, things will go better for you. See, our culture lives in this crisis-driven change. First comes the crisis, then I'll change. We live in this blind idea that it's not that bad. It's not that bad. It could be worse. So we don't have to address conflict, change, and tell people things that they don't want to hear. So we ignore and get around that through just minimizing and diminishing the actions and behaviors that we're doing instead of saying, it doesn't matter what I think. Just listen to him. Just listen to him. Because if you love him, you will listen to him. This is 1 John. If you love me, you obey my commandments. See, this is essentially what's happening that we all have to wrestle with is will I allow my inability to reconcile what I think of God as permission to not listen to God? See, essentially what we're doing in our ideology is, well, I think, I can't see how God would be good and loving if he didn't want me to be happy and he didn't give me these feelings so that I could fulfill them. A loving God wouldn't give me feelings and then say, no, you can't have those. He wouldn't say what we just read, deny yourself. He would never say that. So therefore, because that's my view that I can't reconcile, I don't have to listen to what God says about marriage. I don't have to forgive people. I don't have to be faithful in my marriage. It doesn't have to be between a man and a woman. I don't have to raise my kids in the Lord. I don't have to read my Bible. I don't need to go to church because my desires aren't there and God wants my desires. See, we use our ability to not reconcile as permission to not listen to what he said. And what this passage is getting at is it doesn't matter what you feel. It doesn't matter what you think. Do what he said. When you cannot reconcile it, remember the glory of God shown in front of them. Remember God speaking from the clouds in authority. This is the one who I am pleased. Listen to him. Listen to him. Just listen to him. What will it take for you to listen to him? Think through it. Think through it. The disciples have seen Jesus feed the multitudes. They've seen him walk on water. They've seen him command the storms. All of these things do not just cause them to magically trust Jesus. I think sometimes we think, well, if God would just do this, then I would listen to him, pastor. That's not true. Look at the disciples. Ultimately, 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 it comes down to what Jesus says. Will you deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow, and follow? 
You see, we, we have this truth in Christianity that you are saved by grace, right? You've been purchased by the blood of Jesus. It's a free gift. When you receive that gift, your sins are paid for. And what we think that means is because I'm saved by grace, I can do whatever I want. The gift equals permission to use Jesus as a doormat, a butler, a genie, or a swap market bargainer. And it's like, no, no, no. The eternal gift is reciprocated with an eternal response. Whatever you say, Jesus, you've eternally saved me. So yes, I don't want to forgive that person, but I trust you. Back to the beginning, your ways higher than my ways. Acknowledge, lean on your understanding, not my own understanding. My heart in this would be that we would not have to be a people that have to be utterly broken until we finally bend the knee and say, okay, Jesus, okay, Jesus, maybe I shouldn't gossip. Maybe I shouldn't have an addiction. Maybe I should be faithful. Maybe I shouldn't look at lustful images. Maybe I shouldn't be jealous. Maybe I should tell my kids no. Maybe I should watch over my finances. Maybe I should watch my temper. Maybe I should, Jesus, because of you. The question becomes, what will it take for you to get to that place? What will it take for you to say, you know what? I'm done wrestling this out. I just need to trust God. Let me put this in a final context. I think one of the things we struggle with most is good and loving God that would allow me to suffer. Can't reconcile those two. So people either change God that he can't protect us. You know, he can't. He's just up there as our therapist. Or that we have to be doing something wrong. And that's why it's happening. Because God would never want that. Here's how I want you to think through. Just think through this with me and then look at the implications. John the Baptist is called what? The greatest man ever born of a woman. What does he do? He suffers in prison and he's beheaded. Jesus, son of God, crucified, humiliated, bears the wrath of God in our place. If they were not saved from suffering, what makes us think that we would be too? So it is perfectly plausible that God says, hey, you're going to suffer and you're going to love me more than your circumstances, your health, your freedom, your comforts, your joys. You're going to love me more. It's going to be for your good and it's going to glorify me because the people around you will see that you love me despite your circumstances, despite your suffering. You love me. You deny yourself and you follow me no matter what the cost. It's perfectly plausible. So that when you get to these moments, rather than fighting with God, and rather than trying to change God, we would simply listen to him. That's the charge. And it's my prayer that we wouldn't need a crisis to draw us to a place of listening to Jesus. That we would simply say, you know what? 
If I'm going to give you that title, then I better act like it. You see, as we go into the holidays, your Christianity is on display. And it's on display for all of those people in your life that you probably don't want it to be on display for. And they will be watching. Do your actions model that you listen to him? When you think of how you talk about the government, how you talk about the people that your kids don't like and you don't like and your neighbors, and you talk about the other family members that you didn't invite because you don't like them, and you talk about the hardships in your life, do you talk about them with hope? Do you talk about them with peace? Or do you show anger and hostility, distrust and unloyalty? Do you listen to what he says? Yeah. Some questions for us to think through. What are Peter's struggles? What are Peter's struggles? He's trying to reconcile king crucified, king humiliated, king not reigning on a throne right now. This is what he's wrestling with. He's wrestling with trusting the words of Jesus when his emotions don't align with what Jesus is telling him. And that is his struggle, to come underneath the authority of Christ and trust him, even though everything inside of him is screaming, this doesn't make sense. Why do we struggle with seeing suffering as a good thing? Again, because in our mind, a good God wouldn't let that happen. But we have no reason to see that in scripture. You don't see that with Job. You don't see that with Joseph. You don't see that with Noah. You don't see that with Abraham. You don't see that with David. You don't see that with Peter. You don't see that with Paul. You don't see that with John the Baptist. You don't see that with Jesus. It's a pretty decent list, right? If you don't see that with them, why would you see that as us? Three, if Jesus and John the Baptist suffered, why do we think we should and will not suffer? What makes us different? What makes us different? You're like, pastor, man, you're really hammering this. Because as a church, as a Christian in this day and age, you gotta be ready to take some abuse and some suffering. It's happening. And I don't want our church to be caught off guard and be like, what? That's not supposed to happen to me. I want our church to be like, you know what? I've heard this before. I need to do what he says, meaning Jesus. Okay. Four, how can you make changes without hitting rock bottom? How can we avoid the crisis in an effort to change? If you have a marriage that is not the way Christ would have it, how can you address it now? If you're parenting in a way, if you have an addiction, if you have you know, a language problem, a temper problem, a gambling problem, a lust problem, how can you address it now? Instead of waiting to hit rock bottom and going, you know, Jesus was right. I should have stopped that. Jesus was right. This destroys me. It hurts me. See, that's part of saying, well, if I'm saying he's king and he says this is bad, then I should stop, even though it feels good and it feels soothing and it temporarily fixes my insecurity and it temporarily helps me. No, 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 no. If he's king, I trust him. I need to let that go. Five, last one. What is the hardest thing for you to do that Jesus has commanded and how can you work on it? How can you work on it? 
It's going to be different for everybody. You were raised different, different environments. You were taught different things. You're surrounded with different things. You've had different, uh, you know, hardships in your life. And so for everyone, there's going to come something trusting Jesus with your children, trusting Jesus with your own identity, that you find your value in your looks and how people think about you, but you need to find your value in what he thinks about you and what he says about you. You have trouble with finances because you didn't grow up with money and it's hard to trust. Everyone has something different. How can you align it under the authority of God and say, I said you're king, I'm gonna do what you say. Because when we get in that practice, it is for our good and it is his glory. It shows he's in charge and we trust him. It shows that who we say he is is how we actually treat him and how we treat him aligns with who we say he is. If anyone is deserving for us to just blindly do what he says, isn't it Jesus? Isn't it Jesus? It is. There's no one worth trusting more than Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we love you. We praise you and we thank you. And we thank you for this text and see the disciples slowly learning more and more and more to listen to your son, Jesus. Uh, it's our prayer that we would trust you. We would come underneath your authority. We would yield and give over our emotions and our fears and our doubts and trust you in the deepest of fears, in the deepest of circumstances, in the darkest of days, we would listen to Jesus. That we would have a reverence and an awe and a fear that anchors who we're talking to. That yes, you are our friend and yes, you love us, but you are also holy and righteous, uncreated, utterly perfect, bright shining light that reveals all things. We would come to you in that way, trusting you, loving you, doing what you say. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. At LBC, we believe uh, communion is something that we should celebrate and do as a remembrance of remembering the work of Jesus on the cross. We do it twice a month. Um, we view it as symbolic. The bread, which I recommend you try take first, and the juice uh, represent the body broken, bread, blood poured out, juice. And when we do that, we remember that Jesus lives the life we can't, bears the punishment in the wrath of God in our place, rises from the dead, conquers death, conquers sin, and by grace offers us a relationship with the Father. And those are all things we don't deserve. And so when you come out of a text like this, it's really good to see, you know, Jesus, where have I acknowledged you in my mind but denied you in my heart. And then confess that before Jesus and say, please forgive me. In my heart of hearts, I think I'm in charge. In my heart of hearts, I live for people to love and accept and embrace me. In my heart of hearts, I worship my family. I worship money. I worship, you know, whatever it is. And say, I put that above you and I ignore you. Forgive me of that sin. Help me listen to you. Help my actions 
reflect the titles I give you, that I am underneath one of authority of a king that is perfect and holy and just, loving, kind, and merciful. These are the things you pray through in communion. As you pray through that, our prayer is that at the end of that, you would come to a place of, and all of these things I am forgiven, purchased, redeemed, loved, and adored. That's when we sing and we celebrate the work of Christ on the cross. Great celebration, thankful, joyful, because of the forgiveness of our sins. So I'm going to pray. You're going to take this in your own time. And then at, 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 you know, a couple minutes have passed. John will come up and lead us in a great celebration. If you're not a Christian, we would say, hey, don't take this. If you haven't accepted Jesus as the payment for your sin, but come talk to us after. We'd love to pray with you and talk with you. But for those of you in Christ, remember what he's done. Ask for forgiveness and celebrate his work. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we thank you for loving us. We thank you for dying on the cross for our sins. Uh, we pray that you would be the one whom we listen to, that we would meet with you and cherish you and love you. We pray that we would come out of this time grateful and thankful for the work of your son, that we are your children and heaven is our home and that we are clean, paid for, and white as snow because of Christ, and we have much to celebrate. Meet with us as we pray and seek you and celebrate you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.